Good morning. We're going to uh, we're going to serve communion from an imaginary table today, as there's no table seated here in front of you. Um, I just want to remind you once again we're going to use the, uh, the, the these cups, and you might want to grab one from the seat uh, in front of you, and just for those who haven't been here before or or. Uh, or, or had trouble before, just remember, there's a very thin cellophane lid that you pull off to get at the bread. Don't do it right now. And then there's a thicker plastic lid that you pull off to get at the drink. And uh, you just might want to make sure your cup has that those lids kind of separated so you don't have to fiddle with that later on when I, I hope and trust you'll be in, in thought and prayer with God as you take part in those elements. Um, and so, so that's uh, for later. Um, it's maybe appropriate that we don't have an actual table here because I, I would invite you to use your imaginations this morning. Uh, I don't have slides. I decided not to make pictures like I usually do because once again, I could not uh, I could not find or make pictures uh, as as detailed and and uh, appropriate as your own imagination can this morning. So I invite you to to use that as we go into story time. Um, you just heard part of the story, and as you know, at Communion Sundays, I'm going through different meals at the Bible, in the Bible, to see if we can enrich in our understanding of the meaning of tables and meals, and what they bring to us as Jesus used a table and, a, and bread and, and wine as a symbol of his life and death on our behalf and his love for us. And so uh, we come to this table in Egypt with 12 brothers. And it's an uncomfortable meal. It's an uncomfortable table. And I, I, I opened, uh, I've been looking at different meals in the Bible, and I was wondering, what is it about this table that maybe can help us understand better what it is we are remembering, what it is we are declaring when we open these, these little cups you just uh, fiddled with there a minute ago. And and, and when we when we drink when we eat this bread together, that is the body of Christ, and when we drink this this uh, cup together, which is the blood of Jesus, what are we declaring? The story of Joseph is probably the most detailed personal stories in the Old Testament. It takes up much of the latter half of the book of Genesis. It's obviously important. It's obvious that God wants to convey a lot of understanding in that story that will help us now in the church uh, in various different ways. And so today I want to focus about one aspect of that table that I think translates into our lives today and what Jesus is doing. Maybe we need to bring uh, the full story into view for just a minute. Um, I, I, I trust you're, you're familiar with it from Sunday school or or, or, it, or watching the Disney rendition of the story of Joseph, or any of those kind of things are, are adequate for your understanding of this meal, but let's just bring it back into our memories, into our imaginations. You remember that, that Jacob was the younger of two brothers, and he went off because of his deception uh, to a foreign land, and, and there he acquired two wives. One, one had ten children, and his, the wife that he loved most had two and uh and jo- and and Jacob who became Israel was was in some ways quite obviously not a good father 
the kind of conflict that would normally and we would expect would come out of that kind of a family situation, in fact, did happen. And, and uh, Jacob, uh, later named Israel, um, clearly loved Joseph, the firstborn of his beloved wife, more than the other brothers. We have the story of the coat of many colors. And we have the story of the older brothers uh, uh, selling Joseph into, into to traders as a slave. And then we know that he went to Egypt and was sold there and spent many years in injustice and suffering and in prison. But then uh, through, through uh, the hand of God in his life and through the process in which Joseph, despite the sufferings, despite the hardships, remained faithful to God, remained faithful to good character and action, um, he became what I think we could legitimately say, the government. I mean, he was second in command to Pharaoh. He decided how much food they were going to store, how many taxes there were going to be uh, during the seven plentiful years. And he decided how the food would be dispersed during the seven years of famine. And he decided who to hire and what kind of administration to put up to set this all, whole thing up. And so Joseph was the government. And into this uh, situation of famine, his brothers, who had defied that they would ever bow to their younger brother, uh, became hungry. And their father sent them to Egypt with money to buy food. And they did. The money for the food was put back in their sacks. I, I, I was just pausing because there's a lot of details, but we don't have time for all the details. You can open your, your Bibles to Genesis and read it all. But they, 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 the money was sent back with them. And so, um, and so they ended up getting the food for free. And then when they came back to Egypt, uh, again, they were very afraid because, because they'd first been accused of spies. I need to add this detail in. And, uh, and they knew they weren't spies. But, but then Joseph had taken Simeon, one of the brothers, and kept him in prison till they returned. And he said he would only release Simeon if they brought their younger brother, Benjamin, with. So there was a big family uh, row about that. Uh, and finally they convinced uh, their father to, to send Benjamin along. They would keep him safe. And they come back to Egypt and they have the money that, they, that was put in their sacks. And they have extra money for more food and they have gifts and, and all of that. And you heard a little bit about that in the scripture reading. And at that point they get invited to a meal. I've always had the tendency to hear this story from the point of view of Joseph. I mean, after all, I'm the good guy in the story, right? But as I was thinking about this table and what it felt like to sit at that table, and the table that we imaginary before us, the communion table uh, before us today, it occurred to me that, that it's probably far more accurate if I read this story from the point of view of the brothers. Far more accurate, far more realistic about my life. Perhaps my life is more like theirs than Joseph's. So let's look at it from that point of view. The story of Joseph is a story of faith. It's because of his faith that he remains positive and keeps his character and his integrity through many trials. But the story of the other brothers is a story of fear. 
Why would they throw, throw Joseph in a well? Why would they sell him into slavery? Well, it's because they're afraid that their father will give the entire inheritance to, to, uh, to Joseph. And they'll lose out and they won't get anything and they'll be left out of the family heritage. Jealousy comes from fear. I'm afraid I won't get what I want. I'm afraid I won't get what I deserve. And so I become jealous. And that, the, the root of jealousy is in fear. So even as young men, in the early part of the story, their lives are ruled by fear. But it only, it only grows and it only becomes stronger as they, as they hide their deception through their whole life. And they, they live duplicate lives, not really being truthful about who they are and what they've done. And, uh, and it, it eats at them throughout their whole lives. They fear the confrontation of the issues in their family. I mean, when Joseph came out with his dreams, they didn't have the conversations in the family that they should have had to resolve those issues because of fear. And then the famine comes. And I think this is a natural fear, but still it's fear. They become afraid of nature. They become afraid of their future. They become afraid that God will not provide. Though he has promised to their father, their grandfather, and their great-grandfather Abraham that he will keep his promised people. They have nothing to fear if they have faith. But they're afraid. And they go to Egypt to buy food. And in Egypt, they run into the government. They run into political powers, and they're afraid. And the political powers, they don't know it's their brother, are entirely unjust and unpredictable. And, and, and they can't make their way. They can't figure out what's happening. They can't figure out what they could say or what they could do to get into a, a relationship that doesn't involve fear and deception and injustice with the government because they're experiencing all of those things. And they're afraid. And then they go home with their food and the, the money they paid for the grain is in, their, is in the top of their sacks and they're afraid because they've already been accused of being spies and they know they're not spies. And now they've, they're gonna, they know they're going to be accused of stealing money and their brother's in prison and how will they get him out? And then they come to a table. It's a table full of tension. It's a table full of fear and guilt. And if you could just imagine reading this story for the first time, and you don't know the ending, I guarantee you, when you come to this point in the story, where they're sitting at the table, every ounce of your being would say, this is the place where the tension resolves. This is the place where someone comes clean. This is the place... It, it's all there. It's all tense. It's all uh, on the breaking point. Anybody just makes a slightly wrong move or says the wrong thing, and it's all going to fly open. It's just so tense. If it was a movie, the, the music would just be you know, thundering in the background. Very well-told story, but a very realistic story. And in that place, that place of confusion, that place of tension, that place of intense fear, it says, as, as we, you just heard read, that the brothers were terrified when they were invited to Joseph's house. The strongest kind of fear that's possible. 
And yet, it says, they ate and drank freely. How did the government know how to put them in, in the order of their age? How did the government know that Benjamin was the favorite? Gave him five times as much better food. Tension everywhere. And once again, they pushed it down below the surface and ate the meal as though nothing was wrong. And then they left. And we're left, just imagine if you don't know the end of the story, like, how is this going to end? There has to be a resolution. And when I think about that, I think about another table. It's a similar table. It's a table at which the one presiding over the table is not Joseph, not one of the brothers. But it is one of the line of Benjamin. Because we know that out of Benjamin came the Messiah. We know that out of the line of Benjamin came King David. And out of the line of David came Jesus, the Messiah. Perhaps it's not a coincidence that the father's name was Joseph. Many parallels between these two stories. And at that table are 12 disciples. And Jesus told, chose 12 disciples to represent the 12 brothers that were at that other meal long ago in Egypt. And as they approached Jerusalem, the 12 brother, the, no, the 12 disciples, there's a parallel there, the 12 disciples urged with Jesus and pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. They feared for their lives. The government was unjust, unpredictable. They didn't know what was going to happen. They were afraid. Jesus went anyways. They were celebrating the Passover meal. Not down in the streets with family and friends and relatives like the whole rest of the Jewish nation on that day, but hidden up in an upper room with just themselves. They were afraid. Leading up to that meal, they had argued with one another about who was going to be first in the kingdom. There was tension between them. At the beginning of that meal, Jesus had washed their feet, completely inverting their understanding of reality. How could the king be the one that takes the lowest position? It didn't make any sense to them. And on top of that, Jesus had told them, and they probably knew in their hearts, you will all betray me tonight. And one of them had already taken the silver into his sack. A table filled with tension. And we long for the tension to be resolved, but they eat the meal as though it's normal. And then they go on. And today, we have an imaginary table in front of us. I don't know if you're like the brothers in Egypt or like the disciples in Jerusalem, but I suspect you've brought fear to this table. I suspect there's areas of your life that are controlled by fear. I don't know what your fears are. As at these other tables, we hold them down, right? We don't share it with each other. We don't have the conversation. 
But you come here to God's house because you expect, you anticipate, you, you hold out a faint hope that there will be resolution. And so we come to the table. It's over there, but we imagine it's here. And we come with what we have. And there's tension, and there's fear, and there's distrust. And there's conversations we've had with one another that have never been resolved. And why haven't resolved them? Well, because of fear. Because of fear of being exposed for who we really are. Because of, of fear of the consequences. Because of, of fear of, of nature, of government. Of, there, there's all kinds of fears. The past, the future. And they need to be resolved. So I asked myself, and I... I invite you to ask yourself, in the story, when is the fear resolved? When does it break open? Now, when I first asked myself that question this week as I was reading over these stories, it, it immediately came to my mind that the fear would be resolved when Joseph reveals who he is. But if you read the story, that's not the case. Listen to this. Genesis chapter 44, verse 12. Okay, I need to back up just a minute. When they leave the meal, they're given their grain that they bought, and the money from the first time and the second time is put in the sacks, and in Benjamin's sack is put Joseph's favorite cup. Now, I don't know what Joseph is doing here. It doesn't tell us is he as confused and as, as uh, conflicted as they are? Is he afraid to tell them who he is, but yet he doesn't want to steal from his family? He wants them to have free food, but, you, but yet he wants to give his, his, the, the brother of his mother uh, a gift, uh, a recognition, but yet he doesn't want... I don't know what's going on with Joseph, but anyways, that's how, what happens. And then he calls them back, and it's revealed. And he says, you're spies, I'm going to put you all in prison. Or I'm going to... Or I'm, or, he says, I'm just going to take the one that, that stole my cup and, and put it in prison. They know they didn't steal anything. Governments are always confusing and unjust, aren't they, when we run into them? It's no different now than it was then. But the fear's the same. And that's the moment. Listen. The steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, all the brothers tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. That's the moment when the fear broke, when it lost its power. They went back to Joseph, and they said, You can do anything to us, but not Benjamin. You can put us in prison. You can kill us. You can do anything to any of us, but not to Benjamin. Why? Because when they saw that the cup was in Benjamin's sack, they were overcome with their love for their father. They knew if Benjamin stayed in prison, their father would be heartbroken to the point of death. And because their love became greater than their fear, their fear was pushed down to a place of trivial. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're going to confess what we did to Joseph. We're going to confess what we did. We're going to take the unjust accusations of stealing. We're going to say we put the cup in bed. It doesn't matter. 
The love was now greater than the fear. Their love of Benjamin, obviously something had changed between when they sold Joseph and now. They now loved their father enough. They now loved their younger brother and knew that, that, that he was the apple of his, their father's eye. They would do anything to protect him. But I think there's more. I think in the intervening years, they had come to have faith in the promise of God to their forefather Abraham. And they knew that they, that they could not act in such a way any longer that would put in jeopardy the promises that God had given to Abraham that they didn't know then, but we know now, came to the point in the Passover and the, and the passion of Christ and the salvation of the whole world. Their love for those things had become strong. The fear became weak. They didn't mind anymore if their reputations were ruined by their confession. They didn't mind anymore if they didn't get food for themselves. All the things they'd been afraid of suddenly moved down the scale of priorities because their greater fear was related to their love for their father and their faith in the promise. They would give anything to not lose those things. Now we come to the other table, the Last Supper, with the disciples and Jesus. Jesus is the fruit out of Benjamin's family. And they leave the meal, the tension unresolved, the fear still there. And they go to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is arrested. And sure enough, the fear causes them all to not deny him and desert him. But when they, what they watch over the next three days, when they understand that Jesus has taken the sins of the world, their own sins, upon himself on the cross, that he's taken those things into the grave, and that he has risen victorious, what have they come to understand? They have come to understand the great love that God has for them and for us. And as they receive that love, as they put their faith in that love, as they understand that in Jesus, uh, how, do, how, does, um, how does John put it in the, in the letters we just looked at the last few Sundays? Uh, this is love. Not that we love God. I mean, that's pretty pathetic. It's, you know, look at the brothers. No, love is that God loved us and gave his son for us. And the disciples then after the resurrection came into that love. And their fears went way down in their priority list of motivations. And they wanted that love from God so much more that they, they feared above all other things losing that relationship with God. Losing that love that they received uh, when, when God showed his love to us on the cross and in the resurrection. They overcame their fears. Their lives were no longer um, ruled by fear. Their decisions were no longer made based on fear. 1 John 4 
verse 18 and 19. Such love has no fear, because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced His perfect love. We love each other because He loved us first. The antidote to fear is love. The way to turn our lives from being driven, as most people's are, out of our fears, which leads to jealousy and anxiety and all manner of suffering, is love. Greater love has no one than this. Perfect love expels all fear. You know, we talk about faith as a mystery. You really need to enter into faith to experience what it is. It's hard to explain if you've never experienced it. But this morning I want to talk a little bit, and I think I've already illustrated to you adequately from God's Word, that there's a bit of a mechanistic uh, bit to this. You know, like, as guys, we like the tools and the, the fixing element here. So here's how you fix it. You can participate. I can participate in the mechanism of this. You see, the, the brothers remain f- ruled by fear until the things they were most afraid of were pushed down to a lower level of value by a better fear. They were afraid of losing the love of their father. They were afraid of breaking his heart, of disappointing him. And that fear, we call it awe of God. We call it the fear of the Lord. 365 times in our Bibles, it says the fear of the Lord. But that fear is, is, is not a, a scared kind of fear. It's the kind of fear that says, I, I would not do anything to lose the love. I would not do anything to sabotage the faith. I would suffer anything if it means I can still live in the presence of God's love and forgiveness and acceptance. The fear of losing love the fear of moving out of God's promise, the fear of the disintegration of God's people, the fear of guilt and death and prison and reputation, all seems trivial when compared to the fear of losing something much higher and much better, the love of our Father. Jesus says it best. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read his words. Then we're going to put some music on. And in the, in the time when that music is playing, I'm not going to uh, make any special gestures or anything. I'll just sit down with you and meditate with you. And during that song, you can, you can open uh, first the top, then the second uh, lid there. Eat your piece of bread. Drink your cup. In Corinthians, Paul says that when we do this together, when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we declare the Lord's death. What does that mean? Well, we just saw from the Gospel of John and from these stories that it is in his death that God showed us his love. 
So when we declare his death, that's not a gruesome thing. We are declaring the love of God. We are declaring that the love of God is stronger than my fear. We are declaring that, that I, will, I will stand in awe of God's love in such a powerful way that I'm, I'm not afraid of anything else. We declare, we remember, we publicly put it on display when we eat and drink together in the Lord's name. This is where I stand. This is what I stand for. This is the love upon which my fears break apart and lose their power over me. So let us read the words of Jesus and then we'll, we'll move into that time of prayer and meditation and we'll take our bread and our cup together as we, uh, as we sit in prayer. Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. Do not be afraid of those who threaten you. For the time is coming when everything that is covered will be revealed, and all that is secret will be made known. What I tell you now in the darkness, shout abroad when daybreak comes. What I whisper in your ear, shout from the housetops for all to hear. Do not be afraid of those who can kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And even the hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. And Jesus has said, this is how we declare. This is how we publicly acknowledge here on earth that Jesus is Lord. And we fear only God.